0: This is Deborah Holchip, editor of Michigan Today. In this mini-episode of Listen in Michigan, I chat with John Bacon about his new book, The Greatest Comeback, and his top five highlights from the 100 years of the Michigan hockey program. 85% of the Canadians tuned into this game, so it's so crazy. Uh, Every Canadian knows about the Summit Series in 1972, and almost no Americans do. Um, it is the most important sporting event by far in Canada, I have argued, I think persuasively, that it's the single most unifying month in Canadian history. More than Confederation, when they become a country, in 1867, because that took until 1982, until they are finally fully independent, believe it or not. It's 115 years, um, World War One, and World War Two, obviously they were very important in both those wars, including D-Day, but those are shared sacrifices, shared triumphs. This is Canada's alone. It's an eight-game series, oddly. It's supposed to be just an exhibition. Four in Canada, four in Moscow. Uh, and the reason for it is the Canadians, like our basketball team, the Dream Team in 92 with Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan, they were sick of losing to the college kids. So they said, okay, screw it. We're getting our best guys together. You're going to get the full, bol- full load. It's uh, NHL All-Stars. 16 of them are Hall of Famers, uh, including, by the way, Red Berenson is on this team and plays a few games for them and plays an important role as well. Um, they figured they are going to swamp them. A game is nothing. Everyone predicts this. Everybody, all the writers, you name it. They lose the first game 7-3 to three in Montreal. And the headlines are atomic bomb headlines. Hockey myth dies. <laughs> I mean, this is the whole identity. Uh, Harry Sindon, the coach of the team, gave me a great quote. He said, Canada is known for two things, uh, wheat and hockey, and nobody watches wheat. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So their whole identity is wrapped up in this. You know, hockey is their first, second, and yes. third sport. It's not like us. We have you know, basketball, football, baseball. So they're in Moscow. They've lost three of the first five games, tied one. So you've got three games left. You've got to win them all. In Moscow, you've only won, you haven't won a game there yet. AK47s lying the rink. Brezhnev is there for every game. It's Holy a big crap. global event for them, for Europe and so on. You've got to win them all. And they do win them all, all by a goal, uh, all in the third period. Red Berenson had a great assist in the sixth game. They won three to two. Obviously, a crucial assist, and then they pull the thing off. Game eight is around 8:30 at night in Moscow. That's 2:30 uh, or so in Toronto, and then uh, what is that? 11:30 uh, or so in out west in Vancouver. 85% of the country watches that game. No one did anything in Canada that week. Not the companies, not the schools, nothing. Uh, talk to any school tr- children, child at that point. They wheeled the TVs in. Gratsky complained to his dad that he's 11 at the time, that they're wheeling in this old black-and-white TV. I can't see it. He said, okay, fine. So he allows him to skip school and go to the next-door <laughs> neighbors because they had a color TV, which in Brantford, Ontario, in 72 is a big deal. So he watched all four games there. And I said, well, didn't you know they accuse you of skipping? And he goes, they knew where I was. <laughs> <laughs> I explained to him that more Canadians saw Game 8 than saw the moon landing three years earlier. And they watched the moon landing. Again, like I said, 85% watched it. Uh, Alan Eagleson, the guy who organized this whole thing, said my question is, what the heck were the other 15% doing? And I told Gretzky about the moon landing, and he shrugged and looked at me as though I had two heads, and he <laughs> said, uh, yeah, it's more important. <laughs> and his great teammate, Marc Messier, uh, was another hall of he wrote the foreword for the book. God bless him. Uh, Mark Messier did, and I explained the same thing to him. He said, if the moon had better ice, maybe we'd go. <laughs> The moon had better ice. We had no reason to go. So um, (laughs) this is the most important event in Canadian sporting history. And I'd say one of the two or three events, according to their surveys, in their history, It changed hockey forever. The hybrid style that University of Michigan now plays, which is hard-hitting NHL plus fast skating and passing European style, that was all born this month in 72, the same month as the Boris Spassky- uh, Fisher chess match. Oh, okay. Same month as the Munich Olympics with Mark Spitz, U.S. basketball team losing the gold medal for the first time with a crazy triple finish that they got screwed out of the gold medal. And, of course, the uh, the PLO and the Israeli athletes. And Mark Mulvoy, the longtime editor-in-chief of Sports Illustrated, who covered this series, he said, this is the most important month in sports as far as all things that happened all at once. I no mean, the, the chess match was on the cover yeah. of Time magazine. Uh, which is pretty crazy. And Ted Turner, of course, who founded CNN, said, look, you don't care about kayaking, but if one of those guys is a Soviet and the other guy is American, you're going to watch because back then you would. So this is a throwback to this amazing tension that we felt. Uh, every guy on this team, and some of them have won 10 Stanley Cups, every guy in this team said this is the highlight of their career and, in many cases, their lives. I love it. So you must have had so much fun talking to all these guys. There are 35 players crazily. And I talked about 25, 26 of them, all the ones who were left. I got to this because Ross Childs, who played goalie at Michigan, his photo, when you walk down the steps of the new Pretzel Bell, is, that's his photo there, the goalie with no mask. His son was my best friend, and uh, he was a teammate of Red Berenson's. So we're the only kids in the United in our school that were running home after school to watch this on Channel 9, CKLW, CBC. <laughs> so this is one of my very first sports memories. I got to meet all my heroes in the process. And they usually tell us, Deborah. And my line of work, don't meet your heroes. You're going to be disappointed. These guys were fantastic, including Red Berenson, who plays a central role not only in the series, but also in the story for a lot of reasons. So, so, talk a little bit about that, Red's role. Well, a few things. One, he's, as we know, the first player to wear a helmet in the NHL, who didn't have to, because he didn't already have a steel plate in his head. <laughs> the first guy to go straight from college to uh, the NHL. Uh, one day after his last game at Michigan, he's playing for the Canadians in Boston. First guy to do that, so he had a lot of respect from these guys on the team. And he played two games, but after the fifth game, it might have been his biggest moment when he was not on the ice. In the stands, they had a 4-1 to lead. And in the third period, and they blew it. And they lost 5-4, to and it's devastating. And on their way off the ice, the Canadian fans, who had booed them in Vancouver after going down 1-2-1, uh, sang Oh Canada, serenade them. And to this day, these players get choked up and grab napkins and start crying this turned Canada into a country. Their flag was only six years old when this happened, 1972. And the sales during that month was about triple the sales of the previous six years Whoa. of that flag. That flag became popular. It's like our Olympic team, USA, USA. That same thing during the Miracle on Ice. So that was big. Berenson comes out of the stands and goes in the locker room. The guys are pretty dejected, of course. And he says, hey, look, we played the best hockey we've played so far. We outplayed him most of the game. We've got this. We've got to focus on, you know, A, B, and C. He's already a coach at age 32, basically. And one of the guys said, look, a guy in the stands comes in the locker room and starts telling you how you're playing. Usually they tell you to, to go to heck or something else altogether, but not red. We listened. We listened because we knew how smart he was, that he had the team first. And that, they say, is when they turned it around and then won three games. So Red's role in this is important on and off the ice. I think hockey players are definitely a rare breed. Uh, I wrote about that in Blue Ice, which is my first book uh, on the story of Michigan hockey. A few reasons. One, these guys tend to grow up in rural areas skating on ponds. You don't get a big head there. Two, the game itself is very humbling. Uh, Wayne Gretzky never won a Stanley Cup after he left the Oilers. One player can't do it. LeBron James and four of us were probably going to win. Uh, one player can make a huge difference in hockey. You have three lines, so one player can only impact it so much. You need teammates. I think it's part of it. Third is they're Canadian. We all know that. Uh, my joke about that is they needed an American to tell a story to brag about them because they will not brag about it. So <laughs> that's great. So the book is out now, right? It is. It's called *The Greatest Comeback*: How Team Canada Fought Back, Took the Summit Series, and Reinvented Hockey. And they asked me to write it, and that was very flattering. Uh, and they said, "Okay, we'll, we'll grant you complete access." without any interference. So I got Phyllis Positol for four hours. I got Ken Dryden for two or three hours. I got everyone you can basically name for two, three, four hours plus repeated interviews. And they're all just wonderful about it and just funny guys. Also, it helps. When you're talking to older athletes, guys in their 60s, 70s, they don't care anymore about public opinion. And they just let it fly. They know what they think. And their egos are in check, I think. So it makes for very interesting and funny interviews. But Red plays, again, a central role he asked me to scale back his quotes because he said, I only played two games out of eight. You can't give me that many quotes. So at his request, I scaled back his quotes. But uh, still a lot of them are in there, and his teammates, again, loved that guy. So that was impressive. <laughs> here's a fun fact for you. Before West Quad, East Quad, or the Law Quad, before Aaron Hemingway published his first book, or Charles Lindbergh flew across the ocean, before New York, Boston, Chicago, or Detroit had NHL teams before hockey games were broadcast on the radio or movies had sound, before all that, the University wow. of Michigan was playing varsity hockey. Crucially, they won 2-1 to one and one nothing over Wisconsin, enough to keep the fans coming back. Michigan hockey survived the Depression and World War II, and Wisconsin hockey did not. <laughs> so I <laughs> Take that, Wisconsin. You you, There's your most important moment first. You asked me for the five highlights, which I did have to boil down from 10 or 12. The first one is, in fact, the first game, January 12th, 1923, they had a three-sided building, Weinberg Coliseum, where the uh, men's gymnastics team now works out. Oh, okay. Right there by Elbel Field. Mm-hmm. Um, three-sided, so the wind came in and all that. Uh, natural ice. No, Burr. no coils, no zambonis, and none of that. <laughs> the Michigan Daily exhorted everyone to come on down to watch the game to, to basically fan the flames of this little flicker of a program. Uh, hockey is a game that nine-tenths of the students have never seen and could not be persuaded to attend, the Michigan Daily wrote. Uh, but there are many others, however, who will turn out for the first game. Um, above all the, a- the attributes of the game itself, the greatest reason why the Coliseum should be packed to the doors tomorrow night and Saturday night is Michigan spirit, <laughs> the quality for which the maize and blue is known throughout the country. It is up to you. The players cannot do it alone. Be there. <laughs> uh, in 1927, Joseph Bars, who was a medical student, but here's the coach. He was last year. He's finishing up medical school, amazingly. Um, they were only 2-3, and three, and they won all five games to win the league. The last one won 0 and 2-1 over Minnesota because they won the league. This is vital. Fielding Yo said, okay, this is a program worth betting on. It's only four or five years old. And that's how he um, put the coils in and made it permanent ice oh, and sweet. a fourth wall in the Coliseum. And he did it right before the Great Depression. Afterwards, you're dead. So Michigan State, wow. Michigan Tech, Wisconsin, all great programs now. And for a long time, they all dropped hockey because they didn't have the, the indoor ice and the support that Michigan had. So, number three, 1948, uh, the first NCAA tournament which Vic Heiliger, Michigan's coach, set up. Uh, he sent letters, how about that for old school, mm-hmm. uh, to 20 of the 20 Division I coaches. 19 said, great idea, that's enough to do it. Um, so, for 10 years, they held it at Colorado Springs. Only four teams went Three games, you know, two semis in the final. That's the whole thing. Well, Michigan won the first one, beating Boston College 6-4 to four, and Dartmouth 8-4. to four, And they won six of the first ten NCAA titles. Right on. Uh, that's why Michigan has nine total, which is still tied for the top with Denver. So that one's big. The fourth one I had a little fun with. The fourth one I picked was uh, February 5th. 1960. It's the middle of the season. How can that be a great moment? Because it was Red Berenson's first game oh. at Michigan. Back then, you had to sit out the first semester. First semester and a half, actually. A year and a half. So he's finally playing his first game. He's the first player Michigan actually recruited, in a real sense, uh, from Regina, Saskatchewan. Um, <laughs> he went to his first football game that fall, and he said, there are more people in the stadium than live in my city. <laughs> and that city is the capital of the province. <laughs> so almost oh, more Canada. than live in the whole province <laughs> at that point. So... Uh, as a country boy getting an education, basically. Wow, I guess. But Al Renfrew, the old coach, his coach, says that 90 seconds into his first game, he takes it all the way down the ice, and he scores. And John Mariucci, the coach of Minnesota, great player himself, said, man, at this rate, we're going to lose 60 to nothing. <laughs> um, almost. Uh, Berenson assisted on another goal five minutes later and scored a third later in the game. Jeez. When Red gets here, I mean, is there Michigan hockey without Red Berenson? It would exist, but it, not, it would not be what it is, not even close. And 33 years of coaching, of course, is uh, three years of playing. That was vital for Michigan and for college hockey, really. Uh, my last one, March 30th, 1996, Michigan wins its uh, eighth NCAA title overtime versus Colorado College in Cincinnati. And that kind of reestablished the program where it basically is now. On to so. the comeback trail. There you go. There's your list. And you, you listened very patiently, Deborah. All right, there you have it, Bacon's new book and his top five highlights from 100 years of Michigan hockey. Take it easy, stay warm, and as always, Go Blue.